0: It's Wednesday, December 4th. I'm Martine Powers. This is an impeachment inquiry update from Post Reports.
1: Well, today we had the first hearing in the Judiciary Committee, which is one way of saying we actually had the next phase of the impeachment process.
2: The House Committee on the Judiciary will come to order.
1: I'm Shane Harris. I cover intelligence and national security for The Post, and I cover the impeachment. The House of Representatives Intelligence Committee has completed, we think, its investigation. They've come up with their report. Now the action moves into judiciary, where they will ultimately craft those articles of impeachment that the House would vote on.
2: The record compiled thus far shows the president has committed several impeachable offenses. The framers provided for the impeachment of the president because they feared that the president might abuse the power of his office.
1: Today's testimony was hearing from constitutional law scholars trying to provide a framework for how to think about the president's acts and the allegations against him.
2: He struck at the very heart of what makes this a republic to which we pledge allegiance. If Congress fails to impeach here... Then the impeachment process has lost all meaning.
1: And how the Constitution forms an underpinning for impeachment and whether his actions rise to the level or the standard or the idea that the framers had about what constitutes an impeachable act, which of course is a very kind of tough question because the Constitution says precious little about what is an impeachable offense.
0: And so what have we heard so far from them and and whether they think that these actions rise to an impeachable offense?
1: Three out of the four witnesses clearly do. And we should say that those three are the ones that were called by Democrats. The fourth one, uh, while he emphasized he is no fan of President Trump, as he put it, doesn't think that the evidence is there to merit impeachment. But for the ones who think that it is, they are essentially making, I think, a very kind of core argument saying, look, The whole point of the impeachment clause, and Noah Feldman from Harvard spoke maybe most clearly to this that I heard.
2: The abuse of power occurs when the president uses his office for personal advantage or gain. That matters fundamentally to the American people because if we cannot impeach a president who abuses his office for personal advantage, we no longer live in a democracy. We live in a monarchy or we live under a dictatorship. That's why the framers created the possibility of impeachment.
1: If what we're saying is that the president in the course of his duties abuses the power of his office and he cannot be impeached for that abuse, then he effectively is above the law. Professor Gerhardt, what is your view?
2: I, of course, agree uh, with Professor Carlin and Professor Feldman. Um, I, and I just want to uh, stress that if, this, what we're, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable.
1: If this isn't impeachable conduct, what is? And felt very strongly that the impeachment clause was designed for precisely this kind of behavior. When you talk about high crimes and misdemeanors, as the founders understood it in the British common law context, it would be abuse of your office for some kind of personal or political gain. And they see what President Trump did as illustrative of that.
2: This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created a constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. And if there's no action, if, we, if Congress concludes uh, they're going to give a pass to the president here, as Professor Carlin suggested earlier, every other president, president will say, okay, then I can do the same thing, and the boundaries will just evaporate.
0: And not only when it comes to President Trump's actions with regard to Ukraine, but also his actions during the course of the impeachment inquiry and to what extent he has complied or not complied with requests from Congress.
1: Exactly. And again, Feldman and others submit this point that by refusing to cooperate, by refusing to let executive branch officials testify before the committees, by refusing to hand over documents, the president is saying, I will not participate – in this process, which is the only process that exists in our country for ultimately checking the power or abuse of office by the president. We can't indict him. We know that. Remember that from the Mueller report, that famous Office of Legal Counsel memo, you can't indict a sitting president. That was the big takeaway. (laughs) That was the big takeaway. And, and, And impeachment is the only remedy. So if the president is Refusing to comply or participate in, again, this constitutionally authorized sanctioned activity, then he is, uh, according to some scholars' view, placing himself outside that process and therefore above the law. And that would be an impeachable offense as well.
0: So in this hearing today, did we get a better sense either from these law professors or even from the questions that were asked of these law professors what the potential charges against the president might or will be?
1: Well, definitely obstruction, I think, will be in there, and that's kind of a given. But that sort of feels like a secondary offense, right? This question still remains, will this central issue be bribery? And there was a lot of discussion about bribery, which, of course, is one of the crimes noted. It's, it's bribery, treason, and high crimes and misdemeanors in the Constitution. Uh, and actually, Pamela Carlin spent some time, as a professor from Stanford, talking about bribery or solicitation of a bribe and why that is actually still a crime under U.S. law.
2: Bribery. Occurred when an official solicited, received, or offered a personal favor or benefit to influence official action, risking that he would put his private welfare above the national interest.
1: So we got some sense, I think, that maybe bribery will go in there, but there is also this concept of impeachment and the high crimes and misdemeanors phrase kind of covering all manner of sins in abuse of office, the idea of an abuse of the public trust. High crimes, we're thinking about it like a crime against the state or a crime against the country. And so... I would imagine the Democrats are going to want to be as specific as they can and that kind of gets you into the realm of the you know the high crimes and misdemeanors piece that can cover lots of things. And actually the Democratic council was questioning the witnesses making sure to point out that it doesn't have to be a crime quote unquote as in something in criminal statute to be impeachable. But at the same time, you know, if you go down the road of saying okay, it's bribery, Then in the Senate trial, does it start to look like a criminal trial where you have to prove all of the elements of the case of bribery as it's understood in the criminal code versus as it's understood in the Constitution? And that's where things start to get a little fuzzy and maybe politically and legally risky for Democrats, I think.
0: So this hearing in the House Judiciary Committee was the big event of today, but we actually saw something pretty major come out yesterday with the release of the 300-page report from the Intelligence Committee Chair, Adam Schiff, basically laying out all the facts of their impeachment inquiry investigation. Was there anything new from this report? Did we we learn anything that wasn't apparent from the many hearings and, and depositions and testimonies that we've heard from?
1: For the most part, no. I mean, it it is very interesting to see it laid out here in in an argument and presenting the case. And it's very interesting how it mirrors the Mueller report in one respect, where the first part is sort of about the crime and the second part is the cover-up. But there was something new that caught a lot of attention that we had not – uh, seen before in terms of evidence, and that is phone logs that the House investigators obtained, it seems like, from phone companies involving specifically Rudy Giuliani and his conversations with officials in the White House and the Office of Management and Budget, and a mysterious individual identified only by the phone number negative one. Uh, my, that is like the minus sign number one. It was um, very mysterious. It was very mysterious, and a lot of a uh, reminded me of individual one from previous indictments, who, of course, was the president. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that my negative one may be, in fact, the president.
0: So right now we're not sure what the negative one number is, but but what what do we know from from those logs?
1: Well, what the logs show is that Rudy Giuliani, at various key points in this whole story of the Ukraine affair, was in touch with people in the White House and was in touch with uh, some of his own associates, remember uh, uh, Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas, these two characters who've been uh, now indicted, as well as a conservative newspaper. Columnist and these dates that he is in frequent touch with them all coincide with important moments, such as the firing of uh, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch in Ukraine. During the period in early August, in which the White House was trying to set up this meeting for President Zelensky of Ukraine with President Trump, which of course becomes an element of this alleged quid pro quo. In the weeks before the April 25th announcement by Joe Biden that he was going to run for president, there's a flurry of conversations between Giuliani, Lev Parnas, and John Solomon, this conservative writer for The Hill. And ultimately on that day, there's a column put out by John Solomon criticizing Joe Biden, bringing up all these issues in Ukraine. Rudy Giuliani then has a conversation with negative one, and a little bit later, President Trump is on Sean Hannity talking about the John Solomon article. So when you put these things together, it's not that it's necessarily revealing any like a new conspiracy or new activities within the alleged conspiracy, but it's giving a lot more detail and just it's just more, I think, powerful and kind of fixing evidence, if you like, that really pins down who Rudy Giuliani is talking to and these key players at these key moments. This is evidence— Of Rudy Giuliani coordinating the smear campaign and coordinating elements of a quid pro quo between the White House and Ukraine. It's important to note we don't know what was said on these phone calls. But when you look at the frequency, the number of times he was in contact with key people, potentially even the president, around these moments that are the very kind of key events in the impeachment.
0: So these phone calls Or these phone logs would theoretically help Democrats build on this appearance of of who is influencing Rudy Giuliani, who is influencing the president. But also the phone logs revealed something kind of new.
1: Yes, they revealed that Devin Nunes, the ranking member of the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, which was the one that had all of those impeachment witnesses a couple of weeks ago, that he was in touch with, among others, including Rudy Giuliani, this man, Lev Parnes, who is an associate of Giuliani's and who is now under indictment uh, and has kind of this shadowy figure who has played a role in the smear campaign and in Rudy Giuliani's conduct in Ukraine. Um Devin Nunes has dismissed this and at one point even kind of claimed that he didn't remember ever talking to this man, Lev Parnas. This is really key though because the questions about what Rudy Giuliani was doing, what these two associates were up to – these were the matters being investigated by the committee on which Devin Nunes is the ranking member.
0: And wouldn't that theoretically be some kind of conflict of interest if oh, yeah. Devin Nunes is the one who is investigating this and he was also behind the scenes having phone calls with some of the people who are being investigated?
1: It's a huge conflict of interest for him not to have disclosed that, for him not to have disclosed his phone calls with Rudy Giuliani, um, at the very least raises the question of why did he feel he didn't need to do that? That I mean, these, are, these things are – Absolutely germane to the issues at play here.
0: And has he said anything so far about why he didn't disclose that, what those phone calls were about, some kind of explanation?
1: He went on Fox News and said he's known Rudy Giuliani a long time. He has phone calls with lots of people. Uh, he said he he didn't remember having conversations with Lev Parnas. I mean, we have the phone logs. I don't really recall uh, no. that name. You know, I remember the name now because he's been indicted. But why would CNN rely on on somebody like this? You know, and I'll go back and check all my records, but it seems very unlikely that I would be taking calls from random people. But again, if we're talking about conflict of interest, even the appearance of conflict of interest is something that traditionally people try to avoid. And it raises a whole lot of questions, I think, about Nunes' judgment and why at a moment when the national attention was absolutely fixed – on these questions and these events, he didn't feel the need to disclose, hey, I've had phone conversations with people who are at play here.
0: So what happens next in the impeachment process?
1: So next, we will probably be moving on, I would think, next week to crafting the articles of impeachment.
0: And is there a deadline for them to do this? Do they have a date set by when they're going to decide what the charges will be when they'll be voting?
1: We think from reporting that the Democrats would like to get this wrapped up and have a vote in the House of Representatives for impeachment before Christmas. So we're talking about a really rapid schedule here. Writing articles of impeachment uh, has only happened a few times in the history of the country. So this is a very rapid timeline on which to do this. All the while, of course, the President will be insisting it's not fair. Republicans will be saying that they haven't been given it that't been given due process. but this this train is moving at a fast clip.
0: Shane, thank you so much. You bet Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post.